The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Coming soon to wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Terry McAuliffe is here to talk about his tenure as the 72nd governor of Virginia. As you'll hear, he's very proud of his accomplishments, but what does this mean for his political future? Is he going to run for president? You can find out right now. Governor McCullough, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Jonathan, great to be with you. So, you're almost done. Yep. Um, and the governor of the Commonwealth can only serve one term. Only state in America. Why? Well, I would say everybody in the uh, Capitol, everybody in our General Assembly all wants to be governor, so they're never going to change it. <laughs> you would have to literally change it in the General Assembly, would have to pass it. It would have to then go to a referendum and then come back to a succeeding General Assembly. And they all want to be governors, so <laughs> it's right. change. So it makes it uh, impossible yeah. to yeah. change it. So Kentucky was about 12 years ago. They changed. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a few states, uh, but Virginia is the last, and I just don't ever see a change. I've loved it. Listen, I've hit it hard for four years. I think every state, it ought to be maybe, Jonathan, one six-year term. Get in, do your deal. You have a tremendous amount of executive authority, and do it for five or six years. So you said you have to hit it hard. but So in a four-year term, like you have no choice but to do that from your perspective as governor. Yeah. But does the legislature see it that way? Well, and listen, there's so many ways to do it. I remind you, the legislature's in, and even your 60 days, they're, the next year they're in 45 days. You are governor 365 days a year, so you have a tremendous amount of executive authority. Uh, I work very closely with the legislature on economic development, transportation, education. I got 93% of my campaign promises done. We disagreed violently, Jonathan, on social issues. They had passed the most anti-women, anti-gay, anti-environment, pro-gun, anti-voting of any assembly I had ever seen. So I have the record for the most vetoes, and I've finally convinced these folks that you can't bring the businesses of the 21st century to your state if you're putting up walls around it. Do you think this economic message that you have is the thing that made you, um, I mean, I've read, you know, very nice things said about you by Republicans. Is it the fact that they view you as a a pro-business Democrat, someone that they can literally do business with, and therefore you could have those social issue fights comfortably and actually win them? And I think this is an important message for the Democrats. I have clearly been the most progressive governor in Virginia history. But I also have the biggest economic development record, $19.5 billion as of today. So what I've been able to do is convince people. Listen, to me, the most important value as an elected official is creating jobs. Jonathan, everybody wants to have a job, a good-paying job, and they want their children to have a job. you got to start there. And I think a lot of Democrats get off the message and maybe just talk about social issues over there. What I was effectively able to do was to merge the two and convince them that you can't bring Facebook, Google, Microsoft to a state where four years in a row I vetoed bills that would have defunded Planned Parenthood. We had an HB2-like bill that I had to veto. We had an HB2 bill that actually got killed in committee. But I think we've been successful saying stay out of the personal lives, really, stay out of it. Remember, when I became governor, don't forget, we had the transvaginal bill that had passed in Virginia. We had the trap laws that would have shut every woman's health clinic down. I put a new board of health in. 
and our women's clinics have stayed open. I just opened a new one actually in Virginia Beach a couple weeks ago. That's how you build that economy. So Republicans, you know, in the dark of night with the lights off will actually say, yeah, the guy's done a very good job in economic development. But for me, that's what matters. You need a job. And since I've been governor, our unemployment's gone from 5-4 all the way down to 3-6, the lowest we've had in a decade. It is now the second lowest of any major state in the United States of America. I have brought $19.5 billion into the Commonwealth, which is the most any other governor had done was 13, so almost a third more than any governor in the history of the state. Our initial employment claims, just Jonathan, hit a 44-year low. Jobs, economic development, open and welcoming. We are a new Virginia. Let's talk about the party. Uh, because you started your answer to that question about this is a lesson for the Democratic Party. You were quoted in, in, in our story. You said, this is the re- revitalization of the Democratic Party in America. This isn't just about Virginia tonight. This is what you said yep. on, on election night when your lieutenant governor yep. became governor-elect, governor-elect Northam. And you also said what this should tell Democrats um, is if you're going to win, you've got to run on values you believe in, make it about, make it about economy and jobs. Is this something that can be replicated around the country, or was this something just specific to Virginia? Oh, no. This is the message that works. And, you know, I'm popular in Virginia today. I'm happy because of the jobs, because of the economic argument. Everybody's happy today, but the Democrats have got to have a message that lifts people up and helps folks. I will go back to the biggest value set you can have is providing a family with a job most important thing that you can do. And everything sort of comes off of that. But the point I like to tell Democrats, and I just did the state JJ dinner in Ohio when I was just down in Palm Beach, people are sick and tired of politicians who put their finger up in the wind to see which way the wind is going. I'm very proud. I have never done that as governor of Virginia. I have leaned in. I've restored more rights for felons than any governor in the history of the United States of America. The Republicans sued me twice, took me to the Supreme Court of Virginia. It was hard. But, Jonathan, it was the right thing to do. And the harder it is, the more challenged it is, is the more you need to step up. And even Republicans in Virginia will sell you that. I'm not surprised what the guy did. He said he was going to do it, and he's doing what he said he would do. And too many politicians today, they're always looking for the next angle. They're wondering where the polls are. I've never done it. I will fight for what I believe in. And if I win, I win. If I don't, I don't. But I'm going to go down swinging. So let's stay on the restoration of felon rights before I bring you back yeah. to, to the Democratic yeah. Party. Where did the idea come from to do that? And why hasn't any other governor, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. why hasn't any other governor yeah. tried to replicate that? Well, here's the interesting thing. So when I became governor, I was passionate about this topic. And I took office and I started, you know, 40 states, John, as you know, it's automatic. There are 10 states that the, it's not automatic. We had a horrible history in Virginia. In 1902, we had a state senator by the name of Glass, a disenfranchisement of felons, a poll tax, and a literacy test. And they passed that, and what he said that day is, I am doing this to eliminate the darky from being a political factor in Virginia. That was his quote. Well, I got to stand on the same spot 115 years later and tell him, new sheriff in town. And I restored the rights and ended that horrible Jim Crow era laws that we had in Virginia. And I knew I was going to get beaten up. I knew I was going to be sued. But it wasn't about me. It was about all these people. Listen, they've served their time. And it's interesting. In America today, two states, Maine and Vermont, you vote in prison. Fourteen states, you vote the second you walk out. I put Virginia in the category, you're out, you're done with probation and parole. 
But there's not a day that goes by, Jonathan, that someone doesn't come up and say, thank you, Governor. You restored my rights or my sister's rights or my brother's rights. People are back in society. They're, vo- they're, they're paying taxes. Why wouldn't you want them to vote? They're back in society. I wasn't giving you gun rights back. I wasn't reducing your sentence. You're done. You're back in society. You paid a sentence, a penalty determined by a judge and jury. And I'm just saying you should get those rights back. And, you know, I got sued. And when I did it, the Constitution gave me the authority. The Supreme Court of Virginia said I didn't have it. They said he has to do it individually. I said, all right, I'm going to sign them all myself. The Republicans sued me for contempt of court. I think I'm the first governor to be sued for contempt of court. And I won that one. Um, there was a hundred, how many? A hundred? I'm at a hundred, about 71,000 right now. The individually? Yeah. Signed. They're back. They're done. And it, it's the most of any governor in the history of the United States of America. And it's the right thing to do. And uh, is it safe to say that it's your proudest achievement? Yes. As governor? No question. Um, anyway, so let's come back. Let's come back to the party. It was interesting that you said um, that you're the most progressive governor in Virginia's history, which is hard to argue because we're talking about Virginia. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so yeah. in the primary, there was Governor-elect Northam, now Governor-elect yeah. Northam, against Tom Perriello. Yep. And Tom Perriello was the candidate who was endorsed by Senator Sanders. He was the progressive candidate. Progressives really wanted him to be the nominee. And when he um, what didn't become the nominee, they said, aha, there they go again. The establishment is... Um, the establishment wing is taking over and they've made a mistake and Perriello would have won and all of this stuff. I'm trying to test out a theory here. Um, And Tom Perriello did something that, to my mind, is the model, and that is if you're the progressive candidate and you lose to the so-called establishment candidate, well, then on day two, you go out there and you campaign your ass off for the nominee of the party and do so eagerly and with enthusiasm to ensure that that person wins. And that's exactly what Tom Perriello did. What do you say to the Bernie faction of the Democratic Party that won't heed that lesson, won't say that, yes, Virginia is the model for for the Democratic Party um, across the country? What would you say to them? Yeah, well, first... Let me just say, I reject the premise of the establishment in the sense that, you know, when I ran for governor, if you remember, it was a pretty unique run. I came out and told women I'd be a brick wall. I believe I was the first statewide candidate or elected official in the South to come out for marriage equality. I told the NRA to jump off a cliff. I had an F rating, said I was proud of it. That, had, as you know, had never happened in Virginia. So we went in blazing away on the issues that mattered to us. And I think, and Ralph won, I mean, listen, he won by 12 points in the primary. He won establishment versus Tom. We had success. 60-plus percent of Virginians were happy with the direction of the state, and Ralph was my lieutenant governor. You had nothing to complain about. All the women's rights issues and all of that had been. But you're right, and I give Tom a lot of credit for coming in and doing it. You know, when I lost in 09, I got out to help Creedies the next day. Quit the labels for a second. If you believe in the people and the direction that they're going in, put all the labels aside, get out there and fight for the person whom you believe in. And we had a clear choice with Ralph Northam, then lieutenant governor, army doctor, uh, had run a childhood hospice clinic as a volunteer, running against Ed Gillespie, who took the Trump model and ran the most racist, bigoted, 
ads I have ever seen in Virginia history on sanctuary cities. Virginia doesn't have sanctuary cities. They're against the law. He attacked on my restoration rights that Ralph Northam, who ran a child uh, hospice clinic, is somehow supporting pedophile sexual predators and is a gang member. It, it was laughable. And Ed paid a horrible price, and Ralph won by nine points. Were you surprised by the campaign Ed Gillespie ran? Shocked. I've known him for a long time. It's not the Ed Gillespie I knew. I think he's got to be regretting this today. Those ads on Sanctuary City and the restoration rights were sick. sick. Why did he do it? Was he, did he play the finger in the wind and go where he thought the wind was blowing? No question. I, I can't give you other, any other answer. I, I think he didn't he hire like one of Trump's top operatives, and they ran into the gutter. They ran a dirt campaign, and they took their campaign in the gutter. Ed would have been better talking an optimistic view of where he wanted to take Virginia and Virginians, but he ran a racist, bigoted, divisive, disgusting campaign, and he paid a horrible price. And because of that campaign, he has got to live with the legacy that we won as many House of Delegate seats since the 1880s. I like that. I wish people could see the, the face that you just <laughs> made. It was the emphatic, the eyebrows raised, and the, the, the hard stare. 1880s, Jonathan. Right. Well, I mean, so... So what you just said about, about Ed Gillespie's campaign and, and the very strong words you just used could be applied to the Republican Party as a whole. Or, do you, or am I putting words in, words in your mouth? And, and, and what do you make of the Republican Party fully embracing Roy Moore in Alabama um, as a candidate for Senate? Yeah, I have empathy for all these women who really, I mean, think about this, Jonathan, to go out and stand up and to relive this horrible history all over the country for all the people involved. I, I give these women tremendous amount of credit. I think it has sent, rightfully so, a chill all over America. No means no. And sexual harassment will not be tolerated by anybody. What does this say, the, the, the embrace of, of Roy Moore, about the state of affairs in the Republican Party, but also in American in American politics, that the party we used to liberals used to joke that you know the Republican Party was about you know guns, God, and gays, and the God part is like gone. These are the folks who were lecturing people like me about my quote unquote lifestyle. And that was after they like moved away from talking about me because of the color of my skin. I know I'm broadly generalizing here, but the color of your skin and your gay. Right. Shocking. Yeah. These are the folks who were <laughs> used to be lecturing me for decades. And now uh, I'm supposed to like do yeah. busting deficits and embracing child molesters. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, and, I, and how about, I would love like, your thought. You raise a very interesting point, And it is so disturbing where we are in America today. The, the, the divisiveness, the split. You know, I saw that in Charlottesville, Virginia. You know, in the old days, Jonathan, these people would come in, and, and I watched them screaming at the African-American community with the most vile language. I saw them screaming at members of the Jewish faith in front of their synagogue that they should have been burned in Auschwitz. I mean, I've, these people, you know, they used to wear hoods because they were embarrassed by what they were doing. They don't feel compelled to wear hoods anymore. This is out in the public. And as I watch this unfold and people walking down the street screaming, how did we get to this place in this country? What's happened? And, and I came back and I was just horrified. I told my superintendent of schools, K through 12, we got to start teaching 
in school early. Where does this hatred and bigotry come from? And unfortunately, and I've said this publicly, um, I think through the president's actions and his words, he, uh, he has unleashed a hatred in this country. And so, so then how do we put that, um, that genie back in the bottle? Or can we? Or should we use this opportunity to, to say, okay, the hate is unleashed. It's not wearing a hood anymore. It's in our face. Now here's how we manage it. Here's how we deal with it. Or is that even is that even possible? No, it's a good question. And I think we in elected office can do things. Don't give you know. It's a let's be very clear too. There's it's not a majority of our Americans. It is these haters. The people I saw who came from out of state to Virginia came to Charlottesville. Very small percentage of our nation's population who act and behave. And you know that day I told them to go home, get out. You pretend you're patriots. You're nothing but a bunch of cowards. You know, I'd like to see their military record. They all parade around like they're some big military. I mean, goodness great, they're a disgrace to our nation. Um, so we need to do a better job to not give them the microphone to allow them to do and spew their hatred. So I'm coming out with but new Ter- regs. Yeah. But, but Terry, the, I understand what you're saying. There's a small percentage of people. We shouldn't give them a microphone. But the president of the United States is is their microphone. He's parroting their their messages. So how how? But you're asking me what we can do, yeah, honestly. Yeah. And I'm not going to change someone at this point who the what I heard and they're wearing swastikas and Adolf Hitler T-shirts. I, I know Jonathan. I can talk to him till I'm blue in the face. Not going to make a difference. But and I can't. You want to change it at the top? Defeat Donald Trump in in three years. But you know we've got to do a better job and on these protests and banning guns and all the types of, there are practical things. Don't give them this vehicle to spew their hatred and the clashes that went on and the press just loved it and jumped all over it. There are practical things that we can do, denying some of these haters permits, just not giving them, you know, you got to abide by the First Amendment. And listen, I, I don't like what they said. You, and they come in and they can say it. But you don't have a right, Jonathan, to come in and have a gun. You don't have a right to come in and do property damage and those types of things. And I just think we need to look at this. But to go to the issue, some people are done. We're not going to change them. You know that. You and I could sit with them for hours. Many happy hours is not going to make a difference. you got to start with the young kids today. And that's why I've talked to my people, all my education folks. We've got to start early on in K-12 having these discussions about race and all this and immigration and so forth. So there's a clear understanding. Mm -hmm. Is it troubling to you that, um, I know K through 12, but is it troubling to you that the, that the men mostly who showed up in Charlottesville, these weren't old guys. These weren't, you know, folks from, you know, Jim Crow era who were pining for the old days. These were young, these were young guys, young people who were, who were espousing these, these A lot of them right out of college. That's right. Young folks. So how, I I don't know. The press spends a lot of time talking about the fact that, you know, it's the millennials who are going to change the country because it's, they were the ones who told their parents you have to be for same-sex marriage. And yet here we are seeing millennials with tiki torches marching through the old capital of the Confederacy saying some really bigoted things. Bigoted, vile, disgust. No question about it. And, you know, the one good thing is through social media, though, you know, they put a lot of those folks' uh, pictures up on, on the web. A lot of folks lost their jobs. We've arrested a bunch of people now. 
So there has been a good millennial involvement with the social media age. These people are now paying a price for their actions. Um, but they love the attention. You know, we had a group, suppose, from Tennessee. They're going to do a big thing at the Lee statue in Richmond. You know, three of them came up. Cost us a lot of money. We, you have to prepare. And we hear that this uh, clown who did the last thing in Charlottesville wants to come back again on the year anniversary. Okay. Well, you, you, won't, be, you won't be governor no. then. Um, but I, you mentioned um, um, your, uh, when you were running for governor. Yeah. And I, in, in our story from November 13th, <clears throat> had this paragraph in here that I, that I pulled out um, because it corresponded with something I wanted to ask you. It says here, seen just four years ago as a hard partying wheeler dealer who made his name raising money for the Clintons, McAuliffe, who is prohibited by the state constitution from seeking a consecutive term as governor, as we discussed, has new national gravitas. All right. So the first half of that uh, of of that sentence yeah. I zeroed in on because I remember being in the room when you came in for your first editorial board meeting when you ran you know, the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that was that first half of the paragraph was oh so true. I remember sitting like, wow, he's really interesting and entertaining. But man, is this guy not prepared? Fast forward four years. You come in uh, 2013 for your editorial board meeting. And I remember walking out thinking, holy smokes, this guy spent four years preparing and educating himself. What was it about that loss four years ago that caused you to to turn around, one, um, your approach to running, and two, to run again? Well, I, I will be the first to tell you it was an austacious, spacious move when I first ran in 2009. Most people didn't even know I lived in the state, to be honest with you. And, I but, didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of people didn't. But, you know, listen, I thought I could make a difference. And But had I not run in 2009 and been defeated, I wouldn't have been elected governor in 2013. So I got up the next day uh, and said, listen, I'm, I believe I can do this. I really believe I can help people. And spent four years literally going to every nook and cranny in the Commonwealth of Virginia and went to every JJ dinner, went to everything. And by the time the primary came around, I had no primary opponent. I mean, I had a clear shot at it. Um, I ran against the incumbent attorney general, knew the issues inside and out. And, you know, that made me a better candidate in 2013. Listen, losing is very hard. I don't like to lose. I don't think anyone likes to lose. It's hard. But there are lessons you learn about. I've always said I always keep Teddy Roosevelt quote on every one of my desks I've ever had. You know, that person who's in the, you know, blood and sweat. And that poor, timid soul knows neither victory nor defeat. And, you know, I got knocked down hard. But you know what? I got back up the next day. I dusted myself off, and I got in the arena. And no matter how hard it was on me, Jonathan, let's be, let's be honest, my life has been spectacular. After your loss in 2009, in addition to going around the state every nook and cranny and every JJ dinner, did you sit with policy people? Did you sit with experts to to educate yourself not only about the state but about deep issues that um, impact the state? We did, and my incubator was the Commonwealth of Virginia, and let it go to Southside or Southwest Virginia. I would spit, sit and spend hours. I mean, I'll be honest; you're going to find some uh, hard to find anyone who's going to outwork me. You're never going to outwork me. I'll go 20 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I actually love it. I thrive on it. Um, I get more energy by doing all these types of things. 
and I spent literally four years learning it, and I was prepared. I knew what I need to do. And I came out with a very aggressive agenda when I ran in 2013. I mean, you know, it was pretty historic at that time, as I say, a very unconventional platform to run for governor, all about jobs, but stay away from these social issues, and I'll be a brick wall to protect them. And at the time, I'd gotten the most votes of any Democrat ever running for governor. Now, Ralph has far succeeded that, <laughs> but it's good. I mean, we've built a good base. Uh, it's a different state today. Uh, the Republican Party in Virginia is in real trouble. I mean, we, we have walloped them. I mean, they haven't won a statewide race since 2009. Were you surprised by how big a victory Governor-elect Northam won by? I mean, I think people would have been happy if it had been, you would have been happy if it had, he had won, eked it out by one or two points, <laughs> but nine? Yeah. Were you surprised? You were surprised. Don't try to, sure. don't try to sell oh. me that. Like, oh, yeah, I oh. knew it all along. No, no, I wouldn't tell you that. I mean, I was very public. I said we're going to win all three statewides. I thought my wildest dreams, we, the, the best night for us would be 10 House of Delegate members. But what happened was a great affirmation of our four years, but also you had the Trump effect. And what was exciting, Jonathan, I don't think they get enough credit, were all these House of Delegate candidates who ran. These folks worked their tails off every single day, day in and day out, relentless, knocking on the doors, relentless talking to people. And they helped turn out. And so you had the House of Delegates. You had people who said, boy, oh, boy, did I really screw up when I didn't vote in 2016. My election really matters. I thought Hillary was going to win. I don't need to vote. They said, we're never, ever going to do that again. I predict we're going to win the House of Representatives. I think we're going to win it relatively easily. I think, we, you know, we need 24. I think we're going to win way above that. I think the Senate is a much harder map, but people have had it with the tweets and they've had it with what this guy's doing. So, you know, you brought up that you think Democrats are going to take back the House in, in 2018, which makes me... Tell me if I'm wrong. You're the political expert. You've, you've run for office. You've done campaigns. To me, right now, the air feels like 2006. Yeah. When Democrats took back the House yeah. and then, surprisingly, took the Senate. You're saying, yeah, does the air feel like that to you? Very similar. Uh, you know, people had had it with the Iraq War with, with Bush in 26, 2006. Now you have all of this going on with Trump. I mean, he's in the low 30s in Virginia today. Uh, Bush never got to that level. So it's worse than anything we've ever seen. Uh, I'm just afraid yeah. of what the guy may think he may want to do to try and get his poll numbers up. Well, what, what, what do you think he might do? Well, I, I worry what he could do with our military. I mean, I really worry. I mean, you, I mean, going after Gold Star families, I mean, there is nothing that's off the table with this guy. I see he's like the crazy uncle up in the attic. I mean, you just don't know what they're going to do in a given day. Up in the attic, I, like he's out downstairs <laughs> roaming around in, in, in the kitchen, um, in, in the living room. Okay, so now we got to focus on the second half of, of, of that paragraph, and that is the, the one about your new national gravitas. Um, had Virginia gone the other way, had Ed Gillespie won, won the race, um, your, your future would have been a little clouded, no? Probably, yep, depending on what I decide to do. But listen, winning that election, the statewide, I mean, to have your lieutenant governor, as you know, I recruited Ralph to run for lieutenant governor. There's no question that was a, was a big win. I like to say, you know, it was a win for Virginia, but clearly it was a huge benefit to me. It was an astounding win. But 
it was four years of really great work by a lot of people. You know, I thank my 110,000 state employees. We're a different state, Jonathan, than we ever I mean, lowest unemployment now we've had in 10 years, second lowest of any major state. Those are metrics that you can judge someone on. Right. Open and welcoming. We used to be one of the worst states in America for women's rights, gay rights. That's all gone. Um, so la- uh, I, I was out I of dinner. I think di- you need to move to Virginia. <laughs> I was out at dinner with the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, Michael Steele. And I asked him, because, you know, you sit with the former party chair, you can't help but talk about, about politics. And so I asked him, in 2020, who do you think, Michael Steele, Republican, will be, not should be, will be the Democratic nominee for president? And what he said almost knocked me off my chair. Without hesitation, he said, Terry McAuliffe. And I... I I knocked you off your chair? Well, yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I I am what? used to hearing, oh, I've Cor- known you Cor- and Nick Cor- for years. Booker. How can you do that? <laughs> I know. But he, he, I'm trying to read my scribbles here. He said that you were the best prepared, you were best suited, um, and can hit the ground running. He said that victory, Northam's victory, was very important in this regard. He says you were not a bad governor. Um, you, he said you were a center left governor who ran left and govern govern centered. Um, he said he's responsible for what happened in Virginia. These were all glowing things. He says that you could, you could be the next nominee, presidential nominee, uh, for the democratic party. Is that something that you want to do? Uh, Jonathan, I get asked this a lot. Honestly, I'm a very straight shooter. I'm going to finish up here on the 13th of January. I'm going to take a big role in those 36 governors. I'll travel all over the country in 2018. I'm going to do a lot of work on veterans, and Dorothy's going to do a lot of work on childhood nutrition, volunteer projects. Nobody has to make a decision until January of 19. And what I have told everybody, I'm very strong about this, I don't want people talking about 2020 for anybody because I am petrified about 2018. We're down today to 15 Democratic governors in America. Under the last 10 years, we have been walloped at the state level. They control a vast majority of the state legislative chambers. Who will draw the maps in 2021? And redistricting is something you've signed up with Eric Holder and his redistricting effort. But listen to me. This is so important. And I fault our party, and I used to be the chairman of the party. You know, I built our first voter file in the party's history. I built a new headquarters. I tried to put some structure in place. But we have always played presidential, and billions of dollars is raised, and then go away for four years. The Republican Party, a lot of it with Coke brought money, very smartly have gone in to win at the state and local level. They go in and do state auditors. They do as uh, state judges. Very smart. So what's happened now is they are going to draw the maps in 2021 that will give them even more control. Only one person, Jonathan, can stop that. That is a Democratic governor who can veto a bad redistricting map. And right now we're down to 15, 16 in January when Phil Murphy comes in in New Jersey. If we don't win it, because why this is important to Democrats is the rollback of women's rights and gay rights and environmental rights and voting rights is all happening at the state level. 
systematically. I vetoed a bill this year in Virginia that in order to get an absentee ballot, you have to fax in your driver's license. That would have disenfranchised thousands of Virginians. You could sell gun, machine guns out of gun stores. I vetoed that bill. I could sit here and list you my 120. We have been asleep at the switch at the state level, and they have systematically rolled back fundamental rights and values that we deem important, and yet we've done nothing about it. And that's what I'm going to focus on in 2018, and we'll see where we go after that. But Democrats, wake up. It is at the local level, I can just tell you. Four years in a row, Jonathan, I vetoed a defund Planned Parenthood bill every year. If I were not the governor of Virginia, that would be law today, and all 20-plus women's health clinics in Virginia would be shut down. Gone. We would have HB2-like legislation in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That would be law today in Virginia. What would you say, let's just fast forward. I know you don't want to fast forward past 2018, but I still want to fast forward to to 2020. Let's say you got into the race. How, one of the knocks against you would be, oh, well, I mean, he's Clinton era. He, He, you know, he was the guy, he raised money for the Clintons. He's tied to the Clintons. He's a Clinton guy and the party needs to move forward. We're like, well, how are we going to move forward if we keep hearkening back to, to the Clintons. What's your, what's your response to that? Well, push back. Uh, first Can you all, push back? First of all, what I say is I need to be judged on my four years as governor, not who my relationships are. I have been very close friends, and Dorothy and I, with the Clintons for many years. We have vacationed together. They have been great to our five children. I never, ever, Jonathan, walk away from my friends. I am the most loyal person you will ever meet. I am with you in good times. I am with you in bad times. And that is a trait that everybody will talk about, and I'm proud of that. But just hypothetically, if I read, I'm running on a platform of what I believe in and what my value system and judge me on my four years as governor, not who my friends are. Goodness gracious. Um, So you were on MSNBC, and it was split screen. It was you on one side. Larry Sapato on the other side, another former, uh, another person who's been a guest on the podcast. Oh, good. And um, uh, Chris Jansing. Most quoted man in politics, they say, <laughs> yes. from UVA. And, and the anchor, Chris Jansing, a, a, a friend of mine, yeah. asked you, the question I just asked you, are you yeah. running for president? Yeah. And you deferred to Larry Sapato and said, let Larry answer. And, well, yeah. <laughs> and he said, yes. I always defer to Larry. I mean, the man is a genius at UVA and, uh, you know. I'm being very straight with you. I'm I'm focused on what I'm doing through 2018, and we'll see what happens after that. I have made no plans, honestly, Jonathan. We'll see where life takes you. You know, I've had a fascinating life. You know, as a kid who grew up in Syracuse, New York, who had to start a business at 14, you know, to help pay for college, uh, have had a vast, exciting life, five beautiful children, a great wife of 29 years. You just see where life takes you. I pinch myself. I've had a fascinating life. I've enjoyed every minute. People say he's a big personality. Well, okay, I am. I love life. I love people, and I love life. I get excited about just about anything, and that's who I am. I'm not changing. Terry McAuliffe, former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, former chairman of the National Governors Association, and soon to be former 72nd governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Jonathan, thank you, buddy. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.